0: Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app.
1: Our speaker this evening earned a Master of Divinity degree in May of 1985 and was ordained to the priesthood for the Diocese of Dallas by Bishop Thomas Shapi at St. Monica Catholic Church in Dallas, Texas, on June 1st, 1985. Completing his canonical studies with a licentiate in canon law, Bishop Joseph Strickland was assigned by Bishop Edmund Carmody as rector of the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception in Tyler, Texas, in June 1994. In 1996, he was named a prelate of honor with the title Monsignor by His Holiness Pope St. John Paul II. Chosen as the fourth bishop of the Diocese of Tyler by His Holiness Pope Benedict XVI, Bishop Strickland was ordained to the Episcopacy on November 28th 2012, and has led the Diocese of Tyler since then, it is uh, my distinct honor and pleasure to welcome back to the Institute to uh, launch our curriculum year this evening, Bishop Joseph Strickland. Welcome, Your Grace.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Father Hezekiah, and thank you, Peter. So time for a prayer?
3: Please, yeah, open us up in prayer, and the evening is all yours.
2: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Almighty God, we thank you for this day, for all the blessings that you offer us as we enter into these days of October. We thank you for faith and the opportunity to know more deeply the truth that your Son has revealed to us, this revealed truth that brings us the fullness of our lives, tells us who you are as our Lord and God, and who we are called to be as your children. We thank you for the witness of the saints as today we celebrate St. Francis of Assisi, a wonderful saint who had great strength and great love for all of creation and for you, Lord, as he took on the stigmata, the sign of the suffering of God's own Son. We pray for the intercession of all the saints, and especially the Queen of Saints, the Immaculate Virgin Mary, as we seek to study together, to learn, and to continue to grow in this wondrous truth that always calls us deeper into the wonder of knowing Jesus Christ. We ask this blessing in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So thank you all. I, I really want to thank you for your commitment to learning and to know that you are the church. We ordained are here to serve you, but you are the ones in the marketplace and the schools and the hospitals, just in all the different areas. And so I commend you for taking time at the end of a busy day. Some places it's it's very much the end of the day. It's sort of getting into the evening here at 7 p.m. in my central time. Uh, But I thank you all for participating. What I've uh, titled this—and it really is more of a theological reflection than any deep theological study—I'm I'm daunted by the names I've heard that uh, are far beyond me in theological prowess, but I love the Lord. I love His Church. If that's a credential, then I will claim those credentials. But I, I titled this The Facets of the Mystery, and what we're talking about is power. And how it's exercised in the church. Let me just read the little paragraph that I shared. You may have seen this, I'm not sure, but my primary approach to this presentation is to offer more of a theological reflection than a deep theological study. The topic is worthy of at least one doctoral dissertation, but in the limited amount of time we have and the limited resources I bring to the question, I believe the best I can offer is approximately 45 to 50 minutes in what is considered to be an overview on the topic, Power and Authority of Christ in His Bishops. So I begin with that whole idea of power. As a bishop for just almost exactly 10 years, it's very daunting to realize the authority and the power that a bishop has. But I think we all need to highlight that not to get us bishops carried away with that authority, but to recognize the power of a bishop is really kind of frightening uh, for me as a bishop, because when I say this needs to happen in the Diocese of Tyler, 33 counties here in rural Northeast Texas, um, I have the authority to make it happen. Uh, Certainly, people have the authority to respond or not to what I've decided. But a bishop has a lot of authority, but we need to always root that. And I ask your prayers for me and for every bishop, from Pope Francis, the bishop of Rome, to every bishop around the world. We are really all the same in what the church defines us as bishops, as successors of the apostles. And we are called to exercise The power and authority that we have always with humility. And if we look to Christ, that's easy to do, because our Lord is deeply humble. I I think that's one of the, the greatest reflections that I've been blessed with in almost 10 years as a bishop, is to keep going back to the humility of the Lord of the universe, who became a child conceived in the womb of a human woman, a sinless woman, absolutely, the Blessed Virgin Mary, but a real woman, not divine. Here in East Texas and probably in some of the areas where you are, um, our understanding of Mary is challenged because people think, oh, they worship Mary. Of course, the Church has never done that, and as I've tried to tell the people here, uh, part of, as we study power and authority, Mary has tremendous power, but she's the first to always point to Jesus for any power that she has to intercede for us and to bring us closer to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we ask for the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary for the Church and for each of us as individual members of the Church. I read something today that I think is is very important for us to understand, Really, where the church happens is where you all are in homes, in the domestic church. Some of you may live alone. And sometimes, sadly, I know that I've talked to single people or widows or widowers who feel alone and feel kind of left out of the picture of the church. That's tragic because you are the church. And we need to remember that if there's a child of God in the building, that building is a domestic church. And so for all of you, whether you're part of a large, bustling family, or you're single, or there are just a couple of you in the home, your home is the church. And that domestic church, I think we uh, really need to help people to understand, because really, you share in that power of, the, of Jesus Christ. The power of the truth The power of the truth is really tremendous, and we need to hold on to that, to be strengthened by it, to be challenged by it. The truth changes us if we really are open to it, and we have to be aware of that power. But I would encourage you, uh, whatever your home is, it is a domestic church. Like I said, if a child of God lives there, it's a domestic church. And think about, I would imagine that most of you, if you're entering into this kind of study, I'm sure you have some sacramentals in your home, some some statues and pictures, and those things make a difference. They help to create that atmosphere that reminds us that really we are never alone. Christ is with us in the sacraments and in the sacramentals that remind us of His presence. That's what a sacramental is, a little reminder is not a sacrament, but that crucifix over your door, or that statue of Mary in your yard, or whatever sacramentals you have, uh, the rosaries that we pray with, they're all little reminders of the big signs that the sacraments are, and Christ is the authority over the sacraments. As a priest of 37 years, we always have to remember, and we know that, that, that theology of the church the sacraments do not depend on the holiness of a minister, whether deacon, priest, or bishop. And and in this time especially, we need to remember that, to pray for all ordained ministers, and to recognize that when the sacraments are celebrated validly, according to what the Church gives us in our ancient rites, and uh, we believe that Christ is acting, and that's what we need to remember. The power of the sacraments is the power of Christ, and that has to be very strong for all of us, especially in this time, because things are said and things are being pushed that are not of Christ, and we simply have to acknowledge that. Not in a way that causes us to despair, but I'm sure that too many of us, probably all of us, uh, know people that have said they're leaving the church, or they have left the church. Um, That is tragic. And you have the power to continue to reach out to them in a welcoming of love, come back to the truth. Because when we leave the truth that is Jesus Christ, it brings harm to us. God never gives up on us, and we can always have in His mercy the opportunity to return. But um, I am glad to, to speak on this topic of power because we, we pay so much attention to power in the world money is power, the voice of the media is powerful, we talk about powerful nations, but as we look to Christ, He tells us, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to Him by the Father. He's the divine creature, and I want to be very clear with that. Don't report me to the theologians. He is fully God and fully man, but He is fully man, and that's a great mystery in all things but sin. And so Jesus shows us, someone said recently, and this is something that I think is very important for me to remember, for all of us, I'm just Joe, ultimately. Yes, I'm a bishop, and I have a great responsibility and a great authority and power. But ultimately, before God, we are all simply sons and daughters, and we need to continue to humbly do our best to, to live that truth. But someone pointed out recently, we can use the the great theological terms that are beautiful and complex, like the hypostatic union of the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Certainly, He is fully God, and we need to always remember that. He is God's divine Son, come to dwell with us. But I think what I was reminded of, and I mentioned as we talk about power, is he is the model of humanity for men and women. He shows us how do we live as beings created in the image and likeness of God. And really, if we think about that, we do have tremendous power. We have a power that no other creature on earth has. And sadly, too many, and we are I'm a sinner, we all are, too many of us use that power in the ways that are distorted by sin, and we all lament that. We see the world in too many ways unraveling, but we trust and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of His church, Jesus Christ is Lord of creation, granted by the Father, Father, Son, and Spirit there in those beginning verses of Genesis that tell us God is the creator of all. So all of that hopefully echoes and reminds us of what we talk about when we talk about power and authority of Christ and his bishops. The bishop's authority, whoever that bishop is, wherever he is bishop, is a very vicarious authority. It is not mine. It is always vicariously serving in the name of Christ. And when I lose touch with that, I can do a lot of harm. And we've seen that through the ages, and we sadly see it happening now. We need to pray for bishops. Um, I joke with my priests and the people here in the diocese, I thank them for praying for me, but I, I acknowledge that they have to. It's built into the Eucharistic prayers at a bare minimum. We pray for the bishop and Pope Francis in the Eucharistic prayer. That's because we need your prayers. Bishops need the prayers of the faithful. Let me begin in my outline with just, we just celebrated the archangels, um, September 29th. St. Michael the archangel, his name means who is like God, and this is a basic element of authority in the Church. That title of St. Michael, who is like God, we need to to take it in in a lot of different senses, mainly An answer to a question, really. Who in the world is like God? No one. And and certainly, St. Michael, in his battle with Satan, who pretended to be, he's the great pretender. And Satan is having a field day in the church and in the world today. But Christ has conquered him. And the Blessed Virgin Mary crushes the head of the serpent that represents Satan. So I think that I was inspired to start there with this discussion, or this—I guess it's a monologue, really, but uh, maybe we'll have some discussion toward the end—but the name of Michael, who is like God, that is the basic foundation of the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us, especially beautifully in John's Gospel, but really throughout the Gospels, Jesus reminds us that He is one with the Father, and He is exercising the authority of the Trinity. That's Jesus' authority. So, beautifully, He models for us in His humanity. He's fully God and fully man in the humanity of Jesus Christ. He models for us that He's always looking beyond Himself. That's what we have—we must do. He— in the great mystery, He is God. So how is He Father and Son and Spirit? It, I do not claim to be able to give you a nice, simple explanation of the mystery of the Trinity. We can come at that from various directions, and that's a whole other talk, a whole other topic for that. We need to really delve into. Who is like God? God is is basically the answer. Who is like God? God is like God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Anyone else who pretends to be like God is on the wrong path, and that's what happens. Over, We all do it. I I confess. I do it. I'm a sinner. When we sin, we're saying, well, in this, maybe it's a big mortal and destructive aspect of our lives, or it's that nagging Imperfection that we all struggle with. But ultimately, when we sin, we say, I think I'm like God. I'll be like God in this moment. And thankfully, we repent and we realize our foolishness and we could create that cycle over and over again. I would imagine most of us, and I certainly would confess that this is true of myself. um, I've heard a lot of confessions, as I'm sure Father Hezekiah has. And people will often say probably something that you say, Father, I keep repeating the same sins. That's our human condition. Not to be satisfied and say, well, the same thing as I'm just going to keep rinsing, repeating. We are challenged to go through those basic imperfections. As I talk to people about the seven deadly sins, as we go through that list of lust and greed and gluttony and sloth and wrath, and envy and pride, there's one that, you know, flashes in big red lights for all of us, and maybe more than one, but at least one is the dominant way that we say, oh, and this, I play God, and I decide what God has revealed as truth that I need to humbly embrace. No, I keep bucking against that. And so I think that's a perfect place to start with the, the name of the Archangel Michael, who is like God, only God, and we have to keep going back to that and humbly acknowledging when we depart from that. The second point I make, when Jesus is conceived in the womb of the Immaculate Virgin Mary, the humility of Almighty God shows us that humility is rooted in any real power. Jesus shows us that, and and we see that played out in in the strictly secular human world that we all live in. When a leader in the world, and whatever it's a, a business leader, or the leader of a family, or whatever way leadership is exercised in, in the strictly human reality, when humility is left out of that picture, I mean, just for us as humans, when an author- a human authority loses their humility— Whoever they have authority over is in trouble, because humility goes with real exercise of power and real um, real ability to, to wield that power in any constructive way. It's so tied with Christ in what He does at the Last Supper. He models for us. He models for me as a bishop, for for all of us, bishops, priests, and deacons, for all the ordained, We're meant to serve. We're to be the servants of the servants of God. We're all called to do that. And when we forget that we're called to serve, we lose the real ability to wield power. Um, We can still have the power, but it becomes, so often it becomes abusive when it gets disconnected from humility. And Christ models that for us. We're, We're just in the midst of this, um, thankfully, thank God, we're in the the post-Roe v. Wade world. But I think we all see it's still not a simple world. It's not like, oh, it took care of everything. In many ways, the complexities are still there because the, the power is still there. The power to destroy unborn human beings is still there. So Jesus really shows us as He becomes one of us in that very moment of conception. What humility. It is awesome. The humility of the Son of God, as He does the will of the Father, as He begins that human journey, as we all did, as He continues that journey in the humility of being a newborn child, there's nothing with less power than a child in the womb and a newborn infant. We've all probably in our studies, we're aware that virtually every animal in creation is more able to to navigate the world newborn than a human being is. I mean, and and even newborn, I grew up with cows and horses. Amazingly, within minutes, they're up and walking. How long does it take us? Takes maybe a really you know advanced baby starts to walk maybe nine ten months but it's usually around you know after that or a year so the the lord becoming the 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 frail human baby child is is just tremendous humility and shows where power really is rooted not in some ability to manipulate this world, which that's where we think power is now, but in the ability to be connected to God and to His will into His divine plan. So I think those two images I wanted to start with, that idea of Michael, who is like God, only God. God is the only likeness that we can look to, and we're made in the, His light, image and likeness And that's a great reminder for us. And then the humility of Christ being conceived in the womb of the Immaculate Virgin Mary. I move on with looking at some gospel passages, beginning with the gospel of Luke, chapter 9, 46 to 48, that I believe further amplifies this basic pillar of authority in the church. For the one who is least among all of you is the one who is greatest. Let me read those few verses from Luke chapter 9, and look how this begins. An argument arose among the disciples about which of them was the greatest. Ever had those arguments? We've all had those arguments. The disciples are beautifully human, aggravatingly human, and even Christ, you can see sometimes his aggravation with them. And probably we can look at them. I love to look at St. Peter. It's like, Peter, you know, he's a great leader, but he also, you know, he gets caught up in the things that all of us get caught up in. But here we have an argument arose among the disciples about which of them was the greatest. Jesus realized the intention of their hearts and took a child and placed it by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you is the one who is the greatest. So I think there the Lord speaks beautifully about the new world that he brings us, and I think we always need to remember that. We hear about a new world order, and that's a you know a scary phrase, at least in my opinion. God's plan, the, the new world, and, and scriptures speak of a new heaven and a new earth. It comes with the incarnation of God to become one of us. A creature enters into creation, and it's a new ball game ever since. We're living in that new world. I love to tell the the people here in the diocese, and I I urge myself, we need to live as first-century Christians in the 21st century. And what I mean by that is we need to remember that the tremendous advances of Christianity in that first century, it happened because they were close to Jesus, they were literally had walked with Him. And then they were it's sort of, I mean, you could see in the early fathers sort of a competition with, you know, I was closer to the guy who was closest to Jesus. And we need to have that same kind of fervor that we are closest to those who are closest to Christ because we know we're tapping into real power, real authority, only when we tap into Jesus. And that's what he models for us in those verses from the Gospel of Luke, reminding us, the world is always getting caught up in who's the greatest, but we are called to be great in Jesus. And, as a, and part of my growing up is right here in East Texas. I was ordained for the Diocese of Dallas, and then Tyler was created as a diocese. I've been here all my life we're—after a lot of growth in the Diocese of Tyler, we're about eight or nine percent Catholic, and that's after growth. We're still vastly the minority, but I think that's a blessing in some ways because it's a reminder to us of we've got to stay close to Jesus Christ. And people tell me, Bishop, you talk about Jesus a lot more than, than I hear other bishops. We need to talk about Jesus we're all about Jesus Christ. He is the Lord and Savior. He is the head of the church. We, the Bishop of Rome, and all the bishops are here to serve Him, and we need to remember that. I, I'm not going to quit talking about Jesus, because He is the power. He is the authority that we always have to look to, and if if I say something that is diverging from His authority and the truth He has revealed. I'm the first that wants to be corrected, because he is the truth that we must always tap into over and over again. Let me move on to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. He taught them as one having authority. Very early in this Gospel story, it is established that Jesus speaks with authority. This highlights a basic aspect of how he presents himself to the world. Let me turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses, just, just two verses, 21 and 22. Then they came to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I think there's a very sobering element in that, that I hear as a bishop. Um, the scribes were religious leaders in that day, in that time, in the Hebrew community. The scribes and the Pharisees, we hear very often, but Jesus is telling as he, he says this in many different ways in many different passages, but he teaches with authority, and this is in Christ speaking, but the, the gospel commenting really, the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I think that's a reminder for me and for all of us, again, to to look to the authority of Christ, to look to Jesus for the authority. I see that we're blessed to have a a wonderful vowed religious sister with us, and uh, probably others, uh, just one that I see on the screen, but we need to remember that Jesus is the authority. And when we're on the right track, and I'm sure all of you have have taught classes and you've been involved in various ways, when we're teaching Christ, then people will listen. When it's authentic truth, people will listen. I mean, I'm astonished at the people that listen to me. I mean, frankly, that Father Hezekiah and, and Peter contacted me, Bishop of Tyler. Probably a lot of you have no idea where Tyler, Texas is, because it's a small place. But I've been heard, and I'm, I'm humbled to be heard, but it's only because I speak about Jesus and His authority, because He's the one that speaks with authority. And I need to remember that. We all need to remember that. We have conferences of bishops and we have the synod going on, and all of that can be great. But if if it moves away from the authority of Jesus Christ, then it's in trouble. I don't care what the structure is or what the the provenance of that truth that if it's moving away from the truth of Christ. We need to just raise our hands and say, I'm sorry, let's go back to Jesus. Let's go deeper into Him. Let's, you know, humble ourselves and say, it it can happen. It happened through the ages. It happened as Paul speaks to the Galatians, you know, uh, about there is no other gospel. We've always got to go back to Christ, to listen to His words, and to be renewed in our relationship with Him. Uh, I'll just give a a plug about for all of us, and and I think we need to remember this as we are continuing here in this country with the Eucharistic revival. Which absolutely, I think all of us would agree, we need a Eucharistic revival. But as we do that, let's remember that we tap into the authority and the power when we are in the presence of our Lord and Savior, body and blood, soul and divinity, really there in the Eucharist. Believe me, it is daunting for me as a sinful man to stand there and celebrate Mass. And I encourage the priest in this diocese, I'm sure Father Hezekiah shares with me the the awe that we need to have in, as we celebrate St. Francis today. He speaks beautifully of The world should tremble when the priest holds in his hands and says those words of consecration, and bread changes from mere a flat piece of unleavened bread to the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Talk about authority. Talk about power, the power of the Eucharist in the words of Christ being spoken by a man who's been ordained, that is is literally playing with fire. And I, I pray for all of us as priests who are burdened in a sense with doing that. It's a joy, but it's also a burden that we need to take very seriously. Pray for your priests, pray for your bishops, pray for the deacons who assist them because there's tremendous power there because we're holding the the power source of the universe in our hands. Not a reminder, not an idea, not a beautiful image, but the real power source is right there. That's what we need to remember. And to as we read about Him in His Word to remember, He's the Word incarnate. That's where our strength has to come from. Um, as we continue, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, 46 to 49, And all who heard him were astounded at his answers and his understanding. That's a little bit different nuance from what we already read from Mark, that he speaks with authority. He answered astounded at his answers and his understanding. I think what that reminds me of, the nuance that is there as we encounter Christ in his real power, is to remember that he is truth incarnate. And so when we're encountering Christ and his power, we're also encountering him as the font of truth. I'm often intrigued by uh, Jesus as he stands there before Pilate, and Pilate really representing the, the power of the world, the power of Rome, which was the superpower of that time, Jesus standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, what is truth? And There's so many different ways to reflect on that moment in the gospel, and in a sense, it's the world. Pilate is speaking in terms of humanity in an arrogant way, saying, what is truth? And he's saying that to truth incarnate. I think what I'm reminded of in Luke chapter 2, verses 46 to 49, his answers and his understanding, he is the source of truth. We are can come to a deeper knowledge. We may not be blessed with infused knowledge like some of the saints, but when we are are truly doing our best to study and spending time in the presence of the power source of the universe, Jesus Christ, I'll testify to you for myself. Spending time with Christ in the Blessed Sacrament gives me greater strength, and I'm a weak and sinful man, but the Lord can do wondrous things with us. And he tells us that as his priests, pray for the priest to step away from the committees and all the activities, and even celebrating the sacraments, step away from all that busyness and spend time with Jesus in his presence, in his real presence. And all of you can do that. Hopefully you have Eucharistic adoration, or even if it's not adoration, to simply pray with Christ in the tabernacle. There's great strength. He's the power source. Remember that. Let your imagination embrace that. There's no greater power than the Lord who is in that tabernacle. Think about the closest tabernacle to where you are and remember to plug in to that power source because that's what we bishops and priests and deacons need to remember. We can all get caught up in, in authority and, and all the tremendous decisions that a bishop has to make every day, and the authority to move priests here and there, and to make these decrees, and, but we need to humbly remember our real power always flows from Christ. A couple more um, quotations in Matthew chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. After Peter's confession— Jesus speaks of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys are a significant image of the authority given to Peter, along with the power of binding and loosing, which is given to all the apostles as well in Matthew 18, 18. So we have Peter receiving the power of binding and loosing. Matthew 18, 18, Christ refers to all the apostles receiving that power of binding and loosing. That ancient image that comes right from the scriptures the image of the keys to the kingdom, I think, is an image, as we talk about power and authority, uh, it is a, an image we need to remember. All of us deal with keys. I remember as a pastor, I used to be frustrated by the number of keys I had to carry around because we had a lot of buildings, a lot of locks. We, w- Where do locks come from? Locks are necessary because we forget... The power source. If all of us were really living with remembering that Jesus Christ is the power source of humanity, we wouldn't need locks. We wouldn't need all these intricate ways that even on our computers, you have these passwords. I mean, I'm sure we're all inundated with passwords. I have an app to help ha- help me and handle passwords. And then, of course, you have to remember the password to get into the app to handle the passwords. It's so frustrating. And I think I often remember that we are in that shape because we forget the power source. We forget the truth, and we all wander off into our idea of what's right and true, and, and the the thieves, and there's a little thief in all of us, I'll confess for myself, because we all sin, but the thieves find ways to get around whatever algorithm Whatever ways that we create more intricate keys and locks, the thieves find ways to get around them. So I think there's a, a, a real beauty in that image of Peter receiving the keys of the kingdom of heaven, because we all know about keys, and Jesus knows in the first century to the 21st century, keys are still necessary because we have locks that have to be unlocked and ultimately because we disengage from the power source. The final quotation that I'll share is from Matthew, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Jesus commissions the disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Here he states that all power in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Let me just turn to those verses of Matthew. We've all probably practically know them by heart, but it's worth reading one more time. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. When they saw him, they worshipped and they doubted. When Jesus approached and said to them, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. This, in my translation of the Scripture, and probably some wording similar in most translation, the heading for that final paragraph is Commissioning of the Disciples, I think we need to really focus on that, embrace that, and remember the power source of the universe has told us all power in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. He is the power in the universe, all power, not just the spiritual power, but the power of life, the power of existence, all power is granted to Him by the Father, to be a creature with us, to be fully gone and fully man, and allowing us to see that power, which in John's gospel says so beautifully, that power that Jesus speaks of in Matthew's gospel is love, because God is love. But that love is the greatest power, because it's the fullness of what love is. We look to a crucifix and see Jesus living out what love really means. It means pouring oneself out for others. It means desiring and living and sacrificing for the good of the other. That's the love that Christ models for us, and it's the power of His love, the power of the universe. So it it all comes together. There's so much in this passage. We could go on for another hour just looking at the Great Commissioning passage, where It's very telling. There are only 11 disciples. Why is that? Because one of them went with the power of the world, the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. There's a little bit of him in all of us because we're sinners. We turn from that, and we turn from that, and we turn from that. But the temptations are always there as long as we're breathing. And that's why we need to turn to the power source that is Jesus Christ. And what does the power source tell us is the mission of the church? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. That is, in a couple of verses, a description of the mission of the church to go out and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, not in our name, but in the name of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and to teach them to observe all that I have commanded, the deposit of faith, the truth that Christ has revealed to us. And as he says, I'm with you until the end of the age. He's with us in word and sacrament. So as I conclude, I would just encourage all of us to really be joyful and be strong in our joy in the midst of all the chaos we're seeing in our nation, in our world, in the church, sometimes, sadly, in our own families, in our own churches. We see a lot of chaos. We see a lot of evil at work. But let us be joyful that this same commissioning, it hasn't gone away, and the Lord is with us especially in the Eucharist, but in all the sacraments and in the Word of God. We have to look to Jesus and His Word. And we're just celebrated, I may have mentioned already, St. Jerome. We just celebrated at the end of September, and he reminds us in that beautiful quotation of his, "'Ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ.'" Ignorance of Scripture, in, in terms of our conversation this evening, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of real power, where the real power is. And when we're ignorant of that, we're going to look for power somewhere. And we see that over and over again in our society, and even in the church. When we're ignorant of the real power source, we look somewhere else, because we naturally gravitate to power. That's part of how God has made us in his image and likeness. We want to look to the real power of truth. And when we're not seeing it, we're going to find a counterfeit that we're going to plug into. And it short circuits us when we plug into a power source that isn't real. So thank you for putting up with me for these 45 minutes or so. Thank you for your commitment to seeking the truth.
3: Thank you, Your Grace. Thank you so much for, first of all, your time commitment being with us, but also your beautiful words full of wisdom. And uh, and so many gathered here uh, pray for you and appreciate what you have uh, stood for uh, in the church and, and see in your efforts um, a, a real desire to be faithful to the source of power himself um, and always be at service to him. In your role as a bishop and in overseeing those who God has placed under your authority. So, on behalf of, of so many gathered here from all over the United States and beyond uh, here at the Institute of Catholic Culture, thank you. Uh, the first question coming in here, and there's probably been about 30 questions that are very similar. How are the laity called to respond in faith and obedience when a bishop abuses his, uh, his power and authority?
2: Well, that's a that's a hot seat question for sure, but uh, <laughs> it's important, and it really is. I'll share with you the, what I find to be the best answer that I've heard, because it, it brings it right down to your home, your family, your reality. If, and I, I think in ther- terms of I grew up in a family of six kids, if my father had come home one day and said, Kids, go beat up on your mother. You know, the kids can't say, Well, dad said beat up on you, mom, so we're gonna come and slap you around. No. The the truth is the truth. You can't say, Well, this authority told me to go against the truth, so I'm gonna, you know, obey the authority. I think that's a good grassroots kind of approach to answering that question. Certainly. I mean, every person is created in the image and likeness of God, and they deserve our respect. Those, I mean, in your studies, you you talk about those in the, the confusion of Confucius and all of that. They're still to be respected. And just because I'm a Catholic bishop doesn't mean that I can't get confused and get off track, or fellow Catholics in the pew, or all of us, we're all prone to giving in to false messages. So we are called—I mean, the, the basic response we have to give is to remember the power source, Jesus Christ, and to do our best to model our lives after Him. So re- starting with that foundation, then if a bishop or priest— tells us something that we know isn't the truth, then we with kindness and with respect say, I'm sorry, but that just isn't the truth and, and here it is in scripture or here it is in the Catechism. Um, to me that that's the best I can offer is but to remember like we've just talked about this evening, Real authority always comes from the truth incarnate that is Jesus Christ, that is God the Father, and when authority moves away from that truth, then it ceases to really be authority, and that's that's hard for us. It's hard for me as, as one bishop in a, a vast church. It's certainly hard for lay people to navigate, but I think to remember going back to the source of the authority, and comparing what's being said to what Jesus says. I mean, you know, in and, and Matthew, his commissioning is to go out and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't say, do it for a few centuries, but then stop. He didn't say, only to this group or that group. He said, teach all humanity, baptizing them. And so, Going back to the power source, if someone tells us, oh, evangelization's over, or we don't need to bring new people into the body of Christ, we have to say, I'm sorry, but the power source says, contradicts that. And we do it with respect and and clarity, and ultimately remembering, I'm called to live the authority of love incarnate, and so we do it with patience and with love. And I'm famous for long answers to short questions, so I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Your Excellency. Uh, related to that, so you, you were just using it kind of as an analogy, the, the, the image of a mother and father, but earlier in your talk, you were talking a lot about the domestic church. So uh, th- this question it kind of flips that back around then. What does authority look like in the domestic church, and what would be your advice for fathers and mothers to bring their children up in the faith with their authority?
2: Well, um, and I'm sure it, I see a lot of wonderful women of God in the in the pictures, and they. I'm sure it's a, a challenging. Um, I believe it's Paul in Ephesians. It comes around with the the mass for the Holy Family, where he says, "You know, wives, be submissive to your husbands." And it's like, ah! Um, but we have to read that whole passage, and. When when we read the whole passage, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That means be willing to die on a cross. And then it goes on with the children. Children, you know, obey your parents. So to me, that's how authority operates. It's a mutuality. It's a complementarity. Men and women bring different gifts. And that's what we've got to hold on to tight in today's world. God created us male and female, and that reality is what shapes the home. You know, uh, it takes a male and a female to have a husband and a wife and children that, that flow from their love, participating in the creative power of God. And so all of that is the foundation of power. Does it get abused? Absolutely. Men abuse their power, women abuse their power, Um, children abuse their power. Maybe that's one of the the growing areas of of power abuse in families is children become the dictators. Dad has to be dad, mom has to be mom, children have to be children. That is challenging, absolutely, because you don't get much support for it. And even when I was a kid, it was challenging when there was more support. But we've got to, again, go back to the power source, the source of the truth. And, it, and again, we, we have to be compassionate with each other. I see a mom, you know, patting her child on the back, and it looks like she's surrounded by a lot of kids. That's a lot of responsibility. That's a lot of work. And a lot of mistakes get made. But we have to go back to Christ, and we have to humbly men. I'm a man and we men have to humble ourselves and remember we're to be servants in the home. Women need to remember the same thing. We all have to serve each other with respect. But I think the best answer for how does the domestic church handle power, it's the same as the the church universal. Look to Christ. What does Christ call us to do?
3: You're excellent. A question coming in, um, uh, kind of catechetical in nature. Why do you why do you think Jesus instituted a church that, after two thousand years, seems to have have inevitably become burdened by bureaucracy? Why why would he choose to work through such a complex structure of men rather than speaking directly to each one of
2: us? Well, um, that's a great question, and I think that the the answer is in the the reality. it it is for men, for men and women. And when we get involved, somewhere along the way, bureaucracy is going to develop. I think that question—like I said, I grew up in an area where there are many many non-denominational churches, there are many Protestant groups, and why is the Protestant world so splintered? It's beyond fractured at this point. It's splintered into almost individual churches, even within various congregational names, I think that comes down to the same, really, the the great question that this person asked. It seems to be built in, it's almost like a catch-22. If you do it with humans, they're going to go toward bureaucracy. They're going to go toward power struggles. They're going to go toward the complexities that you see in the church. I think we do have to remember the, the heart of the church is Christ, and we always have to be—I mean, we we celebrate St. Francis today. He was a great reformer, and, and some of the great saints and theologians have said the church is in constant need of reforming, because humans are doing it. <laughs> it's a holy reality. The power, if we remember, is from God, but we humans, I mean, it's a human reality. It's The church is incarnate. It's not a bunch of spiritual beings. They don't have to worry about how cold it is, how hot it is, how hungry I am, all these things that begin to to wear on us. So I think it's just built into Christ becoming incarnate. He became one of us. He knows what the human journey is, and he chose to bring his spirit into the human journey So that we haven't gotten it perfect or even close to perfect over 2,000 years is probably not any surprise to God. I mean, He knows, He knew that He was bringing it to a broken humanity, and we're going to break it over and over again. But as a church, final perseverance is what we need, as well as individuals. We just keep going, keep working, keep working towards sanctity. Some individual saints have done it much better than the universal church did, but they're just one saint that really came close to really finally living as the human person is supposed to, as God has revealed it to us. But when you get all of us, you know, it's really no—as It as probably many of us, I know it's been said to me many times— the fact that the church still exists is a great testimony to the holiness of the Spirit guiding us. Because what other human institution still exists that existed in the year 50? Um, none, really. And and I'm sure people. some people don't want it to exist any longer. Some people are afraid it won't but the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It may look very different. All those human institutional aspects are not essential to the church, but we do have to constantly seek reforming our own lives and reforming the, the body of the church that we're a part of.
1: Thank you. A, a practical question from James. Uh, he writes in, uh, how do bishops resolve serious differences amongst themselves, you know, again, tying to the messiness of of an institution made up of of human beings?
2: Well, um, honestly, I don't have the answer to that, and I don't think we're doing it. Um, There are serious divisions in the universal church and within, you know, the the bishops of the United States. There's serious disagreement. I mean, I guess the simple answer, and it's It's hard to get to that simplicity, but look to Christ. Look to Jesus. He's the one—I mean, we talk a lot about unity among the bishops, unity in the church. Christ prayed for unity. He is the source of unity. He's the one we've got to look to and to resolve the differences. And, you know, as I've said many times, if I'm getting it wrong— show me how I need to be corrected in Christ. And I I, I don't want to be corrected according to Him, but I think we've got to look to Him. We've got to look to Christ over and over, and to the whole Christ, not to... I mean, you know, if you go to just one verse of Scripture, you can basically have duels about everything and differences. It looks like different things are being said, but if you bring... And that's what the Church has always said. We don't go to one or two verses. It's the whole of Scripture that is teaching us the truth of God. So, I guess my simple but not so simple answer, for the bishops, for the priests in your diocese who may be divided, for your family who may be divided, go to Jesus, go to Him, and humbly ask ourselves, how can I be more like Him? The more we're like him, the more we will be united.
3: Your Excellency, just two final questions are rather uh, pointed or, or, or maybe timely today, but very challenging to the faithful. And I, I am sure that there are many in our in our audience that would like to hear your thoughts on on these subjects. Uh, the first one uh, uh, is this: uh, Can you speak about the situation today regarding the suppression of the traditional Latin Mass? It seems that power and authority is certainly being used to suppress suppress tradition, but it doesn't seem that this is the authority of Christ. What are the laity who love the tradition of the church supposed to do?
2: Well, um, again, uh, that is a tough question. Um, I think, again, to be always respectful toward your bishops, but to lovingly and respectfully share your heart. I mean, I think that's the best that I can offer. Um, I mean, some, in my understanding, some have listened, and 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 you have to hope that they will listen. Um, but I, I really think that that's what we have to do is respectfully, I mean, I see in our diocese, and we, we don't have a lot of the Latin mass, but the people that are there are fervent and and uh, are very dedicated and make a lot of sacrifices to be there. So I would say to respectfully and lovingly share your heart with your bishop of why this is meaningful, why this is attractive to you, what it's done in your life to help bring you closer to Christ. And to me, that's what is frustrating. I'm a I'm a Novus Ordo priest and bishop that just began to learn something of the Latin Mass before all this controversy. Um let's all remember what have I been talking about all evening? It's about Jesus Christ. If it's a valid celebration of the Mass in whatever language, in whatever form, in whatever ritual, if it's validly celebrating bread and wine, word being proclaimed, and bread and wine becoming the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. He's where we have to start. He's where we have to end. He, Jesus Christ, has to be the focus. And if we remember that, all of us, bishops, priests, deacons, faithful, all of us, if we remember that it's all about Jesus, then we trust that he will help us find answers that we can't even imagine right now. But that, what I would encourage people that are really have been blessed by the Latin Mass to share that with your bishop and to trust that the Lord will help him to see ways. And many bishops have found ways to support properly Latin Masses with FSSP or whatever communities that are firmly established. But to To really always be respectful, to be loving in Christ, even when Christ has, you know, I mean, you can kind of see His the the conflicts, especially. I mean, He says some pretty strong things to the scribes and Pharisees, but He always says it in love and in truth, and that's that's challenging. I mean, our our uh, you know, blood pressure goes up, our anger, we get heated we can say things that are not being said very well all of us do that bishops and priests i mean all of us but i think to to do our best to lovingly share what this has done for us to me that's the best way to help a bishop understand that um you know this is a value and to help him find the ways to support it
3: i i would I, I your words are so beautiful your grace and appreciate um, that guidance because there's so many that are frustrated and find themselves just kind of almost tearing their hair out in frustration because of the deep love they have. Um, one one final question looking forward, also a difficult one, but we certainly would appreciate your guidance. Um, and that is whether if you could speak on the uh, synod on synodality. Uh, the question says, as it seems It seems to this person like a Trojan horse meant to impose all sorts of ideas contrary to the teachings of Christ. And I think just there's other questions coming in similar. There's a real fear among God's people. And if you could just speak to that.
2: Well, um, the synod on synodality is fine as long as it's all about bringing us closer to Jesus. But if it's a, Gathering of various—I mean, as y'all illustrate in the great teachings you do through the year—there are many different ideas out there. There are many different teachings. Many, many people have taken many different paths through human history. Our path is Jesus Christ, and so yeah, people may have different ideas. We we need to listen to each other, but always with the end point being Jesus Christ, truth incarnate. And I'm a, I mean, I share the concern, because some of the things we've seen are, are synods of different individual conferences of bishops coming up with recommendations that are contrary to Christ, just because maybe the majority of the people or the loudest voices or whoever, wherever they came up with it, it's not of Christ. And that's what is troubling, because we're not a consensus religion. we're a revealed truth religion coming from the Lord himself. And you know we need to be uh, concerned because the blasphemies and the the desecration of Christ, his his mystical body in the church, I mean we we certainly are concerned if there's any sign of lack of reverence toward the sacred species of the Eucharist. But there's a lack of reverence too often in the world toward the mystical body of Christ, the bride of Christ that is the church. And so we do need to be concerned. It's all about Jesus and any result from a synod on synodality that takes us away from Jesus or tries to pretend there's a new gospel uh, that Paul says very clearly in Galatians 1, there is no new gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if it's taking us away from that, that's a danger sign that we need to all speak up about. Bishops, priests, faithful, deacons, everyone. We need to all say, no, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ.
3: You know, I think we should have, we'll rename this in our library, this talk. We'll just title it Jesus, because you you have brought us back time and time again, over our time together, to the center and heart of our faith. Um, and uh, we very much appreciate your guidance. Uh, we pray for you in your ministry and uh, ask you for your holy prayers also for our mission here at the Institute of Catholic Culture.
2: Thank you very much. If I you love can... talking about Jesus. He is our Lord and he loves us more than we can imagine if we just okay. open our hearts.
3: Amen. Amen. Your Grace, if you could please give us your final blessing.
2: The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Almighty God, we ask your blessing for all participating this evening, that we may all continue to seek to humbly grow closer to the wonder of who you are, Father, Son, and Spirit, and rejoice in the Son you have sent, that we might know you, Father, Son, and Spirit, more deeply in our lives. And let us be a blessing to all that we encounter today, tomorrow, and every day. And we ask this with the intercession of all the saints and the Queen of Saints, the Immaculate Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers and family members. To learn more, get involved and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.